Thanks for joining us for Life Community Church. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Dan. I'm one of the lead pastors here. And uh, we are um, finishing a series today, which means that next week we start a new series. And so that series is called Heart Songs. Did I get that right or did I call it Heart Song? Heart Songs? Um, but um, it's a song, it's a, a series where we're going to be going through some of the Psalms. Um, and it's a series for Lent, and it'll help us reflect on what Lent is about. And so Lent is this time of reflection, of this time of connection with God, this conversation with God, where we ask God, God, what's dead in my life? What's not of you that needs to go? That's oftentimes why we give something up for Lent. And then we ask God to like, hey God, take the goodness that you have, and I want that in my life. I want your goodness in my life. And so it's this trading of old dead stuff that doesn't help us at all, and it's a bringing in of God's goodness. And so we're going to be going through the Psalms and how those Psalms can help us have a conversation with God that does that. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how I look out at my yard. I have tons of trees in my yard, way too many, and they're huge. They're big trees, and they drop branches all winter long. And so all winter long, I've got this like just these, these sticks that are coming down. And it's just a constant chore in the spring to pick all these up. In fact, sometimes my consequences for my kids are like, go pick up 20 sticks. Um, oh, you pushed your sister? 20 sticks. Uh, that's how I get it done. But anyway, right now I've got sticks everywhere, just these dead sticks. And if I don't pick them up, what happens? They kill the grass. Uh, they, they're just ugly. And so there's this... Uh, time in the spring where I just take them all to the curb and remove them, remove all the dead things. And I think that's what Lent uh, has the opportunity to do for us, is to remove these dead things, these things that shouldn't be in our lives, and then we replace them with beautiful new growth. I can't wait for the green grass to come up and, um, you know, tulips and that sort of thing to come up. So that's what this uh, next series is about. So invite a friend, make sure you show up. And then we've also got that lunch next week as well. One last thing before I get started. Uh, this 40 Days of Connection, we gave these out last week. And if you want one of these, uh, they're right by the offering bowl on, the, on your door out there on the way out. But they're just ways that uh, will help us connect with God. And I'll just highlight one of them, two of them. Uh, just to identify three people. Identify three people in your life and pray for them. Just pray for them. And this could be, these aren't this, uh, the idea behind this is not like your immediate family, but people in your sphere, maybe like a barista or someone you see at a shop around town or a coworker. Uh, just pray for them. Ask God what you can pray for them and pray for them. And then one of the other things on here is just to blow some money on them or do an act of kindness for them that you wouldn't normally do as a way of just sacrifice from yourself and giving to somebody else. So that's one of the things that we've, Put on there. Uh, well, we uh, are finishing this series, and so far in this in this Ephesians series, we have gone through the letter of Ephesians, and we've taken a look at what Paul has told his friends in uh, Ephesus. And so here, let me just give you a quick recap. I'm going to give you one line from like each of the sections that we did. So we've discovered the rich inheritance that we have received as God's sons and daughters. 
We have seen how we are his masterpiece made alive in Christ. And then we learned how we are one family united by Christ. That's kind of a theme throughout Ephesians, this unification of God's family. We're united by his power and his death and resurrection. And then Paul encourages us to go boldly and confidently into God's presence every day. Like a child to a loving father. We're given this good news that we've all received spiritual gifts. And we all have a role to play in building up the church. Each one of us gets, gets a gift like this. And then we're given specific instructions on how we can live as children of the light. Not just any light, but God's light emanating from us. And then last week we were shown that this light isn't just for Sundays or a religious ceremony. Living as children of the light is for every moment of our lives, every relationship. How we treat our wives, how we treat our husbands, how we treat our kids, our bosses, our co-workers, our employees. We choose to follow the example of Jesus, his sacrifice, putting others first before ourselves. And now we conclude this journey in this letter, in, our, in, this last, in the second part of chapter 6. Um, we start to conclude this journey, or maybe really it's just the start for us. You know, like this, we've been given all the instructions and now it's time to launch out and do these things if we haven't started already. And so Paul gives us one last powerful exhortation or uh, compelling encouragement to be strong in the Lord. So if you want to turn there with me, this is chapter uh, Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10, and you can follow along um, on your device or on your, in your Bibles, and it'll also be on the screens here. So this is 6.10, Ephesians 6.10. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor, so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. These closing words from Paul, Paul are both an encouragement and a warning. It's like, you know, so I was watching Seinfeld this week, and uh, he, he had to give directions over the phone to a friend. It was that episode where Elaine says, maybe the dingo ate your baby. You guys remember that? Um, anyway, he was giving uh, instructions to Kramer of how to get to this house way out in Jersey or something. Um, I was like, that's a funny thing, giving directions to each other now. Like, that's so foreign to us now, but um, I was kind of thinking how this is like that, like we give directions to a friend, like turn on this street, turn on this street. If you've um, gone on this street, you've gone too far. Give directions. And then at the very end, you're like, oh, wait, one more thing. Right by the park, by my house, there's always a cop there. Do not speed. Like, here's a warning for you. Don't speed because you'll get pulled over. He's always there. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's like giving one, he's giving all these instructions, really important stuff, and then we get this one final warning. Paul's warning us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he goes on to tell us how we can have such strength. 
We need to see two things in this first section of verses. First, this is a call to battle. It is a call to battle. The imagery that Paul is using is a legion of soldiers holding their ground, shields up, armor on, swords out, ready to fight. We're not surrendering an inch to the enemy. And he tells us the enemy is coming. And we're not giving in because we have all that we need in the strength of the Lord. Paul states clearly that Satan is real. The devil is real. There's a popular, albeit false, belief amongst mostly Western people today, and even Christians, that Satan and demons aren't real, that these are just a metaphor for our poor decisions or bad things in the world. And this belief says that there's not really an unseen world where a personal devil is tempting us to carry out his mission of death and destruction and departure from God. That's not a real thing, they'll say. And then there's a belief that often accompanies that where uh, these things that cause pain and death and evil in our world must have their sole roots in a natural cause, like social or psychological causes. And if we could just fix those things, then we would live in a mostly perfect world. I just want to make sure that I tell you before I go any further that, um, that the sciences, that social and psychological help, those are very good things. Those are beautiful gifts from God. But what they're not, they're not the sole source of the solution. The sins that arise from social and psychological issues in people's lives are 100% valid, and they do cause sin. They do cause strife in the world, but they aren't the cause or the sole source. Satan and these unseen authorities, Paul is saying, they, they take our insecurities, our shortcomings, our sins that were already there, our selfish desires, and they aggregate them. They kind of pull on this thread and say, hey, maybe you should do more of that. Maybe you should have more selfish desires. Maybe you should treat people in this way, and it feels good in the moment, and so we do it, and it, it makes things worse. This belief that Satan isn't real, that he's not a real being, and we can solve the world's problems on our own, assumes that people are good at heart. And it assumes that we can be the original author, that we can make good things. We can be an author of right living. And these ideas, they're lies. And guess who they're from? Satan himself, right? It's just one of the many strategies, as Paul says right there, these strategies that Paul is telling us that we can stand up against. The truth of this is that the Bible tells us that the exact opposite is true. That we are born sinful, but with a great hope of Jesus setting our hearts right. The Bible tells us that we need help from the original author of goodness and righteousness. And Jesus offers to completely transform our hearts to be like his. And then there's, there's this other side of the spectrum. That's like evil is just natural and it just comes from us solely. Um, and then there's the other side of the spectrum where I see a lot of Christians will be like, everything bad is from the devil. You know, like I, 
I stubbed my toe on the sink. The devil's trying to stop me. Or I got a nail in my tire. uh, Satan's after me, you know, and they hyper-spiritualize everything. And that's not true either. There is this balance to it where evil can happen naturally and it can also be exasperated by Satan and by our own choices. So the world is saying that the sole cause of evil is only from natural world. The Bible says, yes, there is evil in the natural world, but there's also unseen authorities and powers and evil spirits at war with God in the spiritual realms. And we don't have a full understanding of this. We're not given a full outline of what this looks like in the Bible. But we do know that with Christ, we have the authority and power to have victory over this unseen evil and to resist the strategies of the devil. And that brings us to the second thing we must know in verse 10, in this first section. Who holds the power? It's given to us right there in verse 10. Who holds the power? Who has the strength to defeat the enemy? Is it, is it us? Nope. It's in us. But it's God's strength given to us. Our strength doesn't come from our intellect or our position in the church or how many times we volunteered at the church or how many uh, good deeds we've done or how, you know, how many Bible verses you've memorized. It doesn't come from that. It comes solely from the Lord. The strength to stand firm in the face of the enemy isn't based in merit, but it's the, but it's the foundation um, of love and grace by the love of grace, uh, of God's grace toward us. This idea of God's power in us is just blasted all over the New Testament. If you open up a, a book in the New Testament, you're not, you're going to see a verse that has to do with God's power in us. So let me read you a few here. This one uh, is Ephesians. Earlier, we read it earlier in Ephesians. Uh, Paul writes, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. The power of, of God is in you and I. Uh, this one is also Ephesians. This is 3.20. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever ask or think. This is from Colossians. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. And here's a verse in Luke straight from Jesus. He says, look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. I have given you authority over all the power from the enemy, of the enemy. That's straight from Jesus to his disciples. Look back on this week or this month and think about those times where like you encountered a temptation or you encountered a difficult time. Where did your strength come from? Where did your strength come from? Maybe sometimes it was from the Lord and that's awesome. But if you're like me, a lot of times you try and Uh, muster up the strength to resist by yourself and, you know, the battle doesn't last long. Or there's no strength from yourself and you just roll over and give in to that difficult time. Our strength needs to come from the Lord. 
Let's read the rest of this passage to see how we can receive the Lord's strength. So this is uh, starting in verse 13, and I'll go to 17. So Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul's encouraging us here to show up to battle equipped. Hey, know that there's a battle coming. That was the first part. Battle is coming. Now show up equipped. And when we put on this armor of God, we are promised that after the battle, you will be standing firm. You guys like skiing? If, uh, if, I, if I canceled, I, if your work got canceled this week, and I said, hey, let's go on a ski trip. Who would go with me? Raise your hand. A few, yeah, that's great. I've, I haven't gone in maybe six years or so, but I, I've got this hankering to go. So I hope everyone's work gets canceled and we can go. Uh, I don't know how that worked, but um, I love skiing. I, I was thinking about this verse, and I was thinking what it would be like to go skiing. And, you, you know, you drive up to Wisconsin to their mountains or their, their large hills, probably is more accurate, and um, more hills than we have. And you go up there and you're all ready, you like, you're all dressed, ready to go. You go up to the ticket counter, you know, you get your lift ticket and you snap it onto your, your pants or wherever, or on your jacket, you know, just make sure everybody can see it, how cool you are and you leave it on for 10 years like me. Um, and you go to the ski lift, you got your skis, you plop your skis down and you're ready to clip in. You know how you clip in, you like slam your boots in and then you, you like slam your heel back and then they clip in. And then you look down at your feet and you're like, oh no! I'm still wearing my flip-flops. Oh, man. Um, I realize I just went out of order. Shoes aren't first, but who cares? <laughs> we'll start there. Then we'll go back. Um, you look down and you see your flip-flops. You're like, oh, man, that's not going to work. You can't go down the mountain on flip-flops, not just because it's cold, but because there's no support there, right? There's nothing there. Um, so these are the shoes, the peace that comes from the good news. Your shoes are your foundation. They keep you steady. They give you traction. They support your body. That's what the gospel does for our souls. The good news does for our souls. We can go through life relying on the firm foundation of the good news. Let me show you some shoes. Uh, these, are my, these are my favorite shoes. These are my comfy shoes, Okay. Uh, you say, Dan, those look like really new shoes to be comfy. That's right, because I have two pairs, one waiting in the closet for me um, because I like them so much. I got them from Costco, and I wasn't expecting a lot from shoes from Costco, right? But they're great. These are my comfy shoes. When I put them on, I forget that I'm wearing them. You know, like you can go through the whole day, get to the end of the day, and I'm like, oh, I still have my shoes on. I should take these off. I have shoes that I don't like uh, that aren't that comfy. These... These are my least favorite shoes. They look nice, though, don't they? That's why I wear them, um, because they look nice. They're, these are sometimes my church shoes, and sometimes they squeak. Can you, 
Uh, only when my foot's in it do they squeak. Um, but they're squeaky, they're uncomfortable. These are the shoes that I cannot wait to take off. Like I notice them every second that I'm wearing them, I notice them. And the gospel, it brings us peace. Like those shoes, they don't bring me peace. Like there's nothing peaceful about those shoes. But the gospel brings us peace. And Paul says to equip our foundation with the gospel of peace, just like you would your shoes. So this week, when you are putting on, you all have comfy shoes, I'm sure. Maybe they're slippers, maybe they're uh, chacos, whatever they may be. Oh, Crocs. Dan's got his Crocs on right now. Um, Whatever they are, when you put those on this week, be reminded of the peace of the gospel that the, the shoes of peace bring us. Now I have to go back. So this first, um, this first one. is the belt of truth. And so that's what we start with. This, this belt of truth is uh, a paraphrase of a different phrase in the Bible. So if you were to actually translate from uh, the Greek, which is, this was what the letter was originally written in, it would say, gird up your loins. So, you know, if I went to Dan, I said, Dan, gird up your loins. He'd be like, what? I don't know what to do with that. So rightfully so, it should be a paraphrase. But let me explain gird up your loins because it helps us understand this battle analogy uh, everybody would wear a tunic back then, you know. It would come down, for men, it would come down a little past their knees. For women, it would go down to their ankles. And everybody could gird up their loins for work or for battle. And what that meant is that you would take the hem of your, of your tunic and you would tuck it in to your girdle or loincloth, whatever that may be, so that you could move freely, you know, like you didn't have this material by your knees or ankles getting in the way. And so if you're going to battle, you would gird up your loins. Or if you were going to go do some hard work, you know, maybe you're going to work in construction, whatever that may be, gird up your loins. It might, be say, it might be something for us like, hey, roll up your sleeves and get to work, right? It is this call to do something hard. If none of this is true, if none of what's in the Bible is true, then, then what are we doing here? we don't have truth in that, if we're just playing church and going to a social club here, we should just pack it up and go home. There's nothing for us here if this isn't true. And truth is what holds all this together. And truth is what is composing us in this battle-ready position. Like girding up our loins, it's what's holding us together in this battle-ready position. So put on the belt of truth. Put on the body armor of God's righteousness. That's what's next. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul chooses body armor to represent righteousness. In the Greek, it's literally the breastplate. So it's what's protecting your vital organs. And this is a direct defense against, God's li- against Satan's lies and slander that he's going to throw at you. You know, things like you're not good enough. You have too many faults. You've messed up too much. Your sins are too great. So God doesn't love you. You can't have the good that God has for you. That boat has sailed. We've all believed those lies. That's a really common thing for us to believe. We've all done that. But because of our faith in Jesus, we are called righteous. 
If you have said yes to Jesus, if you have said, Jesus, I want to follow you, I give my life to you, then you are called righteous. There's a couple verses, uh, well, there's tons, but here's two that I like. Romans 3.22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. That's Romans. This is, again, Ephesians. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. We are called to be like God, righteous and holy. That word holy, I have a a whole other sermon on, and lucky for you guys, I'm not going to give it today. But that word holy should be reserved for only God himself. That's a, that's a description, descriptive word for God. It does not apply to us. It's for God. It means without fault, without blemish. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his blood shed for us, we are therefore called holy and righteous. We are completely transformed by Jesus. And so this breastplate of righteousness, this body armor that we put on, it protects us from whatever slander and lies the devil wants to throw at us to tell us, you're not righteous, you're not holy, but Jesus is calling us that through his blood and resurrection. And then it talks about shoes, but we already did that part. And then it says, hold up the shield of faith. Now you remember that Paul's in prison as he's writing this letter He is in prison. And so I wonder if he's like looking around, you know, at the prison guards and at the soldiers who are guarding him and sees, you know, their whole get up. And was like, hey, what's meant to to oppress me right now? I'm going to use and encourage some people with. And so the shield that he was looking at that these Roman guards had, they they were the kind of tall rectangular shields. You know, they're about this high about this wide and slightly curved. They were made of wood and they had a thick piece of leather on the front to stop any arrows or anything like that. And before battle, when, if they were going to battle, they knew they were going to be in a battle, they would soak these shields in water so that when the enemy fired their flaming arrows, they wouldn't cause any damage at all. So these flaming arrows would have be like at the ends would be like tar or something that would kind of like spread out and cause damage and inflict pain. But if they just hit a wet shield, then it just disperses and nothing really happens. There's no damage at all. So that's what Paul is telling us to do. When we raise the shield of faith in our own lives, when we put our full trust and faith in Jesus alone, nothing else, it quenches these temptations, these lies, these doubts, despair, that whatever the devil tries to launch at us just completely stops dead because of Jesus. The next one is put on salvation as your helmet. A question that I imagine every soldier must ask when going into battle is regarding salvation. Am I going to come out of this alive? Am I going to be saved? And even if they've been trained, given the proper equipment, given everything they need to succeed and have the winning advantage, the question almost certainly is still asked. In a spiritual sense, for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, that question has a definitive answer. 
Am I going to survive this? Though we're in the heat of battle, fighting against the enemy, we know that our salvation is undoubtedly secured. We know the outcome of the war. Like, we know that. There's scriptures all over the Bible that tells us what's going to happen. And Jesus wins. Uh, here's just one of them, Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's the same thing that Paul's saying here, the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. This is Jesus, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus wins, and therefore so do we. We know our salvation. We know that our salvation is in Jesus. We know who wins. And then it says, take the sword of the Spirit. Now, many well-meaning people, including myself for many years, took this, uh, took this verse, this specific verse, as a verse that tells us, hey, memorize Scripture. And, uh, you know, every time that the devil tries to tempt you, you whip out your Scripture and you stab Satan with it and you'll get him. And that's awesome. Like, that, that is a true statement. You should absolutely memorize Scripture you should absolutely use it against the devil. We see Jesus doing that. But in this specific verse, there are other verses that tell us to do that. But in this specific verse, he's not saying that. He's saying something completely different, something a lot bigger, more impactful. What Paul is doing, he's making a direct reference to some passages in Isaiah in the Old Testament. And so if you're reading this and you were Jewish and you had much of your Old Testament memorized like they did, especially these key Messiah verses, you would immediately think of this verse, of a few verses in Isaiah. I'm just going to read one of them. But there's a few that would have brought to your mind. And these verses are where the evil things of this world, the dark powers, the principalities that were making evil so bad were just being conquered by Jesus, being obliterated by the Messiah. And so this is Isaiah, I didn't write it down, I think it's Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, 1. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Talking about the Messiah, Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor. He will make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. They will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. And it goes on and on about how the extent of this peace because Jesus has brought justice to the world. Jesus has brought his peace to the world. The rest of the chapter is the extent to which that peace goes on. The peace that we long for, Jesus brings. So in this passage and many others in the Old Testament, God's word is his actions. God's word is God's actions. And that's why the sword is the only offensive weapon here. 
The rest is for our protection, but the sword is God doing action. God going out and obliterating evil. God releasing perfect justice. God bringing peace to wars. God setting what's broken right. So the sword of the Spirit as the word of God is so much more than memorizing a verse and bringing it out in temptation. Again, do that. It's good. But in this verse, it is so much more than that. What's being described here by Paul is the end of the battle. God's complete and total victory over evil. In conclusion to this section of scripture, author and theologian N.T. Wright says this, Paul clearly supposes that the forces of evil that put Jesus on, in, on the cross have been seriously upset by the victory of the resurrection. They are now positively panic-stricken at the thought that the message of this Jesus is everywhere, challenging their power and authority. And that communities loyal to Jesus as Lord and King are springing up bringing together peoples and communities in a new unity, a new humanity that shows evidence of the Creator's sovereign power and hence of their own imminent destruction. They are therefore doing their best to oppose this gospel, to distract or depress the young Christians, to blow them off course by false teaching or temptations, to anger or immorality as laid out in chapter 5. Friends, evil is real. Satan is real. Their strategies, they are real and we have seen, I mean, you turn on the news and you see that they are effective. But we need not cower in fear as Christ people. We've been given the armor of God. We've been given the full power and authority to overcome and defeat this enemy. And we have all that we need to stand firm. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being a God that just doesn't leave us out unprotected. For being a God that protects us with everything that we need. That fights for us. You bring out the sword of your word that brings justice and peace. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for that. Help us to live in that. Help us to put these things on daily and live in your armor. Amen. At Life Community Church, we want you to experience the powerful, life-changing love of God. To learn more, go to lifemohammed.org. lifemohammed.org.